Welcome to the ASCPP podcast, the podcast brought to you by the Association of Child Protection Professionals, where we, alongside expert guests, discuss important issues within child protection and safeguarding. There has never been a more important time to keep up with child protection and safeguarding, but with regulation frequently changing, we realise not all professionals have the time to do so. That's why we've created this podcast, to give you what you need to stay informed. Every week, we'll be inviting child protection professionals with expertise in either research or practice to share their learnings. In each episode, we'll be taking a focused look at a singular issue that you need to know about. These are often specific and urgent, so we'll be talking with the professional at the forefront of the issue. But first, let's hear a few words from the AOCPP team. Hi, I'm Vicky Hill from the AOCPP with some really exciting news about a major international conference we're holding from 12 to 5.30pm on Wednesday, August the 5th. AOCPP trustee Professor Peter Sidebotham chairs as we welcome 11 experts in the field of abusive head trauma, presenting the very latest research and best practice from around the world with lively panel discussions and the chance to share views with up to 500 delegates from child protection. Our experts will also be publishing their work in a special issue of the AOCPP's members-only journal, Child Abuse Review. This conference is free for members or £30 for non-members, but you can join us for a trial period at no cost, which will give you access to the AHT conference, as well as all the other benefits of being part of the only membership organisation that supports people like you in the UK. Go to our website, just Google AOCPP, for all information on how to join and sign up for the AHT conference. Hope to see you there. Hello and welcome. My name is Anne-Marie Christian. I'm a trustee of the Association of Child Protection Professionals and your host for today. In today's episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Daniel Rind about safeguarding in sport. Dr. Daniel Rind is a chartered psychologist and a reader in psychology at Loughborough University. His research focuses on understanding the development and maintenance of unhealthy and ineffective relationships in sport. This research was fundamental in the development of the international safeguards for children in sport now being endorsed by over a hundred organizations around the world. For this reason, Daniel makes regular contributions to national and international media on issues related to safeguarding in sports. Alongside this work, Daniel is working on a global survey of professional athletes about their rights in sport, as well as analyzing case data relating to safeguarding in sports in the UK, including child rights. Thank you for joining us today, Daniel, and I look forward to speaking with you. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you very much. So tell us, Daniel, what is your kind of experiences of working generally within safeguarding in sports? Um, Mainly from a research uh, perspective. So for the last 15 years, I started looking uh, at the positive side, uh, how effective relationships can be developed. And then my research moved towards... um, aligned with Professor Celia Brackeridge, who is a real world leader in this field, in terms of how the other end of the extreme, if you like, and the dark side of, of sport. And I'm a, a real lover of a sport. So it was kind of eye-opening to me to realise that actually it'd be a context where negative things can happen, because often sport is seen as a, a magic place with a whole range of benefits for young people, we should get them more active. And it was an eye-opening to start researching and realise actually 
it can be as harmful as any other social setting. So that got my interest in the area. And since then, we've researched in all sorts of ways to work out how can we actually make sports safer for young people. And what does that kind of look like? And what you mentioned could be quite abusive in relation to the relationship as harmful. Can you explain in that more detail? Sure. Um, the listeners to the podcast will be very familiar with all the ranges of different types of child abuse that can happen, but sport was perhaps less observant of those things happening. So probably the best statistics to talk about were NSPCC did a survey of over 6,000 18 to 24-year-olds in the, in the UK looking back over their childhood experience. And that revealed that uh, over three quarters of them experienced uh, emotional abuse within sports context. Um, one in four was physical abuse. A third had been sexually harassed and then around 3% had been sexually abused. So the whole range of normal child protection issues are prevalent also within the, the sports context. And in that, what do you think are the kind of factors compared to, like you mentioned, we know safeguarding in schools. You know, obviously, we're working together to safeguard children 2018 in the UK legislation and guidance around any other organisation, arts, sports, faith. In focusing on sports, what were the challenges in that? Because mm. you mentioned, obviously, the factor of the emotional abuse. Mm. Um, can you just explain that in more detail? Of course. Uh, what I think is interesting is that abuse tends to happen when power meets vulnerability in a whole range of settings. Uh, and it's perhaps not been recognised until now, is that how much on the one side people can be put in positions of power in the sport context. So whether that's being the person that can make decisions over selection or, or funding or being able to sign contracts for a major club, uh, and that can create real positions of power for potential perpetrators. And then on the other side of things, on the child side of things, they can become vulnerable in terms of how much they've invested or their family's invested and how much they want to, to pursue a career in that, in that area. And they may not have the, the support or the procedures or the mechanisms to actually disclose any concerns because they feel like they're going to jeopardise everything they put into it. So when you put those two sides of the story together, you create a real imbalance that, that can lead to abusive relationships, really. And is this bit of research you've mentioned regarding the NSPCC and, you know, what you mentioned at the start, mm -hmm. is that post Benel? So we know with the Woodward case and what happened there in 2016? And yeah, that, that survey was 2011, so that's kind of wow. a, a long time ago. The challenge has been getting funding to actually conduct, you know, those kind of large-scale surveys to do it, because everyone agrees it's a good idea, but getting funding is, is a challenge. But what we have as um, another sort of indication, if you like, is that I've worked with the Child Protection in Sport Unit, which is part of the NSPCC, and so we're starting now to collect data on actually how many cases are being managed from a safeguarding perspective. And when we've looked at it, you know, there's over 600 cases a year get managed of abuse in sport across the country. And that's often over 100 cases of sexual abuse, 100 cases of physical abuse. So that's another indication, rather than retrospective surveys, that we're actually looking at the cases that are managed today. And, uh, and are they non-recent? You talked about the 100 cases of abuse, for example. Are they non-recent cases or both? Mixed yeah. Yeah, we, well, actually, in the aftermath of the, the Woodward case, you know, there was the idea there's a lot of non-recent cases. But actually, when we look at the, the data, 90% of them relate to incidents in the last two years. So whilst there are those historical cases, you know, the vast majority still have relevance to people that are still involved in sport in some way. And so it was perhaps a higher figure than we thought when we started to, to look into it. And what we're trying to do now is develop a standardised tool so that every sports governing body in the country collects the same data using the same definitions in the same variables, because until now it's often been discrepancies. Different sports collect data in different ways and different categories. So we're really working with the Child Protection Sport Unit to get that more standardised data so that every year we'll be able to say what's happening, what are the trends, what are the growing issues. 
you know, so for example, just in the time we've been doing it, we can see there's significant increases in things like online related activities. When we first looked at it 10 years ago, it was hardly any cases of that. Now it's you know, around a third of cases relate to some online activity. So there's that trends over time are possible and we can collect ongoing data. You mean, for example, then communicating online as part of the grooming, et cetera? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Whether it's through whatever social media, it's relationships being developed between coaches and athletes that are either become inappropriate online or then are used for, to create uh, offline relationships. Um, and also the peer-to-peer, because often the, the narrative is that the perpetrator in sport is always the coach and the victim is always the athlete, whereas actually in the majority of cases, the perpetrator is an actual other peer. Uh, and that's interesting because often the assumption was was the other way. So all of the efforts, often the, the background checks and the, and the education and the training relate to coaches and people like that. And so the peers perhaps missed out as the potential perpetrator of the uh, of any abuse in sport, whereas actually things like bullying and sexual abuse and harassment are more likely to be from a peer than a coach. So, that's so what do you think, finding. in a proactive approach, Daniel, you know, you're saying about peer-on-peer abuse, we learned a lot about that with the research over the last five years, say. What do you suggest in a proactive approach to, you know, if you've got any colleagues from sports listening to this, potentially thinking, oh, that could be me right now in our setting. Um, What could I be doing right now to encourage um, young people to report or discuss it more or, you know, know that it's not acceptable? What, What kind of things would you be exploring there? Yeah, we we have we developed the international safeguard for children in sport, which highlight eight key things that should be put in place irrespective of the setting. So there would be things that people will be familiar with from having a policy and clear procedures for managing disclosures and having codes of conduct for making things absolutely clear where is the black and the white and where are the grey areas and where can we put things in place to, to mitigate that. So I think it's creating a context and a, and a culture where you have those systems in place but actually the culture is one that, that welcomes concerns to come forward because what's been an interesting journey for us is that when we started this in sport People think that the goal is to have zero cases and they're quite scared to have any cases. And that ultimately is, of course, the case. We want zero cases. But in these large organisations with thousands of people, it's perhaps unrealistic to think it's going to be zero cases. And so that's been a real mind shift that when we put safeguards in place, the number of concerns goes up. And they always say to me, what are you doing? You're making the problem worse. We didn't have all these cases till you came along. And that's really hard for me to get them to understand that that's a good thing in a sense. We want people to come forward with concerns, but as early as possible in the process before more serious problems happen. So actually having more cases is a good indicator rather than being scared of them and leading to kind of secrecy and cover up and being concerned about having any cases. So actually welcoming concerns and listening to athletes and children about their experiences is a real culture change, which we've tried to help organisations move towards. And you mentioned there, Daniel, scared. People are scared. Can you explain that in more detail about organizations who might be in that scared model now absolutely yeah say i would say that safeguarding they think is going to be very expensive but it's far more expensive to do bad safeguarding and we've seen that in a number of cases when swimming had their cases in the 90s the idea is they perhaps lost you know a million pounds from all the sponsorship and the, and the loss of, of people coming into the sport and we've seen the cases in the u.s gymnastics now it's costing lots of money so i think people are scared primarily the safeguarding of the organization trumps the safeguarding of the child which seems very contradictory to people but i think people are really concerned about how this is going to look what if the case gets into the media so they're scared of how it will look outside and so that's why they don't want to acknowledge there's a case or, or to try and work out how to, to resolve the case without it becoming a bigger issue so that fear is one of reputation i think again that needs to be turned around i think if you get an organisation that does good safeguarding, you're managing the case well, that's really good for reputation. But I think people often go towards the concerning side. And they, they see the headlines and they, they're, they're scared to even go there. 
And that's why they don't have any cases because they don't kind of create a culture where people are encouraged to disclose concerns and then to actually act upon them and listen to them. And that, that culture of fear leads to actually ultimately a priority of safeguarding the organisation over the safeguarding of the child, which is the, the wrong way around. As you're saying that, Daniel, I'm thinking, knowing sports very well, I work with lots of sports organisations at the top level as well as grassroots. And I'm aware that grassroots being the more amateur, you know, local to the actual big premier premiership in, in all sports, whether it's rugby, football, whatever, in your safeguarding model that you're describing and being scared, mm. I'm thinking of opportunities and policies, procedures and how consistent they are in that safeguarding message. So in the sort of things you're discussing there, out of the amateur grassroots to the potential premier stages, for a child and their experiences, what's the difference there, you know, in relation to effective safeguarding, should I say? And second bit to that would be, Daniel, if there was a person, for example, who wanted to pose a risk to children, which out of those particular two groups would be the easiest and again, you explain why in relation to no challenge of safeguarding or potential hiding, you know, or people yeah. who are familiar with that sport as a legend already as a retired sports person, you know, so all of that. Sorry to kind of give you a big question there, but... It all no, takes- that's excellent. Two, two brilliant questions. I hope I'll come with two good answers. So the first one about competitive level, what's interesting is that the research indicates that as children go up the competitive levels, their actual risk of abuse increases. So the, the prevalence levels of all the abuses goes up as they get up to, um, from grassroots up to the near elite level is where it's the highest. So they're just about to make it, Professor Brackenridge used to call it the stage of imminent achievement. So they're just on the cusp of making it to something as a profession. And that's where they're most vulnerable because they've invested the most and perhaps they're, they can be a more in a position of trust at that stage. So in competitive level, it certainly increases. But in, in hand in hand with that is often the, the safeguarding that's put in place also increases now because often at the grassroots level, it's volunteers that come forward who are welfare officers. And that's where we get the discrepancies because some of those people are volunteer because they're safeguarding experts in their own jobs. They might be in schools or in the police and things like that. So they have their experience and the people are just asked to take on the role. Right up to I've worked with you know, Premier League clubs where they have a large team of a handful of people who are full time working on safeguarding. So there's a real, real range there of uh, even across sports. Some of the professional sports, they can put a lot of funding in. Others, uh, even at the top level, haven't got the funding to really put a lot of safeguarding measures in place. So competitive level is interesting. The risk goes up, but also perhaps the safeguards goes up as well. Your, your second question about where's most vulnerable. Well, I think what's interesting in the UK is that there are a whole range of sports that are government funded. And through that, they have to work towards the safeguarding standards, which are set out by the Child Protection Sport Unit in order to be eligible for funding. And there are a number of organisations that fall outside of that network. The way you talk about where is the most vulnerable is someone trying to become a perpetrator is anything that falls outside that network. Uh, and there's been some work more, more recently to address some of these sectors. So, for example, um, martial arts, whereby trying to move away from a situation where I could set up a, a club on Saturday that's, you know, Daniel's Martial Arts Club, and I, I wouldn't necessarily be required to meet all of the requirements of the safeguarding standards because I'm not getting government funding to do that. So that's perhaps the sectors where they're most vulnerable, where they're, they're not government funded. They don't have to meet the standards at the moment. Uh, and therefore, that's where there's some vulnerabilities. And we've seen some cases come through in those kind of sectors. Wow. It's quite sad to see that there are still loopholes, as you can see, in the system. Mm. Even though we've got working together to safeguard children there. We can still yeah. see that potentially there's um, scope for people who manoeuvre and know those little, you know, yeah. loops that they can go through. 
And what's interesting is that, um, quite rightly, I guess both sport has developed this perhaps a halo effect over years in that if you're going along to a club and someone's volunteering to look after your children on a, on a weekend, you know, they have a whistle and a tracksuit and they're a sports coach, they're volunteer. There's an idea they must be a good person because they're, they're volunteering and they're doing something good for society and people are happy to leave them there for a couple of hours. Whereas if you do exactly that same setting and say, would you leave your children alone with a stranger for two hours? People would be much more questioning about who is the stranger, what are the safeguards? Whereas sport, I think, has this halo around it that it's safe and therefore parents don't necessarily question it when they take their children to along on a Saturday to a particular club. It's not natural to kind of question where's your safeguarding policy, who is your welfare officer, have you been trained and background checked? So encouraging people to ask those questions, but perhaps it's not natural in the sense that sport is not seen as a risky place, so you're not automatically asking those questions that you might do if it was another setting. Is some of that, Daniel, because I'm thinking of that parent whose wishes their child will be successful in this sport, mm that they will be spotted and then they could go on to become a scholar stroke yeah. you know potential first team player professional yeah, player. yeah 100 and that's what we saw with the barry banal case where children were allowed to sleep over um, at his house and when he's that gatekeeper to the children's dreams clearly the parents are 100 behind them they're supporting them and the, and the parent is telling the child do whatever the coach said yes. in order to get to make it to the top and so mm -hmm. Um, you can see the parents have the absolute right intentions, but if you've got there's someone who's representing a, an elite club saying that your child is really skilled, I'm going to get them a professional contract, of course, as a parent, you want to, to hear that message. And again, you might not be asking those questions I talked about because you don't even get into your mind that this could be something that could be abusive. It can only, you can only see the positive end of it. So you're absolutely right. Parents want, want to hear that. And that's perhaps why that group is most vulnerable, the ones that yeah. are almost elite. And also gender, because I know, for example, you've got more girls football, you know, mm -hmm. rugby, etc where before predominantly the professional sports were gendered around kind of mm. males. So in that model of the two and genders being in sports, is there um, one gender more vulnerable to abuse? And I appreciate obviously abuse happens to all types of children, race, culture, religion, etc., ages. Um, but I just thought I'd ask that because the growth of, of, of female sports over the last, say, 10 years. Yeah, yeah. I think I'll make um, two comments on that. One is data-based in the sense of that NSPCC study I talked about. And many of the areas, the prevalence of abuses were, were similar boys and girls. There was a couple of discrepancies in that sexual uh, harassment was reported much more by girls than by boys. But actually sexual abuse, the more extreme end, was 5% of boys experiencing that, but only 2% of girls. Uh, and that was interesting because when people think about safeguarding, they automatically go often to a, a male coach abusing a female athlete when actually boys were more likely to report having been sexually abused. And so when all the cases came out in the media a couple of years ago in football, I use that statistic and say, well, fuck, that means 5% of boys may be sexually abused at some point in sport. But when you turn that around and think, well, actually, that means one boy on every football pitch in the country, every cricket pitch, every rugby pitch, because around 20 people on the pitch. So that seems much more of a big issue than 5%. In every pitch you can imagine on the country, there's one person on that pitch that could potentially be sexually abused. Well, that was a real shocking way of thinking about it. And, and your second question around the growth of the women's game, I think, unfortunately, based on the, the arguments I was saying earlier, is that as you get more elite, you get more vulnerable. I think that could be something on the horizon for female sports. As it becomes more professional, there's more at stake, there's more money, people will get more in positions of power, that actually abuse might become more and more of an issue in that context because of those growing relationships of power imbalance. And so I think that's where particularly that needs to be um, proactively looked at so that as the sport becomes more professional in, in women's sport, that doesn't coincide with an increase in the number of abuse cases. Wow. And obviously with the international experiences, knowing around the world, even though we've got the rights of the child, UNICEF, 
Mm. We also appreciate every country having different approaches to child protection and also every country having a government of some sort and having potential services, provisions, etc. Yeah. And it varies. What's your take on that internationally in what you just said for the UK model? So what's your point on that, Daniel? Yeah, it's massive. We, as I said, we did conducted that International Safeguards project. That was with 32 organisations all around the world. And what's interesting is prior to the project, you think child protection is black and white. It's very clear what's abuse, very clear what isn't abuse. Everybody must be on board with it. It's a clear idea. As soon as you go around the world, you realise even what it means to be a child is very different. On the one hand, it's up to 18, but in some countries, it's once they start school, they're no longer really seen as a child. Even the age of consent for sexual activity ranges from maybe 13 up to 21. So mm-hmm. that, that, that massively changes about what's appropriate and what is inappropriate in this sort context when the broader ways in which children are treated in society is clearly mirrored within thought. So that was challenging when we came up with our international safeguards because it had to be something that was a flexible framework, but actually it couldn't just be copying paste the Great Britain model to work anywhere else because it wouldn't work. So it's more about working with organisations to develop what's right for their country. Because in Britain, we love our paperwork and our procedures. And many countries we went to say, well, my office is a bag of footballs and that's it. So don't tell me to use forms and procedures. So you have to find other ways to make it meaningful for their context and actually something that's going to actually change practice and experiences. So it was rather than going out there with positioning ourselves as the expert, that was the real resistance we got at the beginning, saying, who are you coming here? What to tell us what to do, what's appropriate, what isn't appropriate. It was much more, we used the phrase, facilitation rather than dictation so it's saying okay what does it mean to be a child here what we do to enhance that experience wherever that happens to be and taking into account the social norms political norms resources available etc so they don't see safeguarding as a mountain that's insurmountable so they don't even bother trying to climb you have to work out okay what's realistic for your setting and let's set achievable goals for the short term some people made real major progress in terms of safeguarding with no resources at all just by the way they prioritize safeguarding and made it a core part of their business So um, a lot can be done through that approach. So therefore, internationally, would you see the fact that you had that work to do at the start to recognise the child in relation to, you know, the life of a child, rights of a child in that country based on the other things about criminal responsibility, Mm. age of sexual consent, etc. And then thinking of a person who could pose a risk. So would it be easier in some ways, like what you said, if, for example, the converted being somebody in an organisation has moved on or expanding how easier it would be for somebody to actually get in and work for somebody without all those checks. So we know obviously in the UK, the DBSs and people that are caught and not caught and therefore being constantly like an ongoing culture of vigilance. So overseas, would you say it's something that it's easier? Yes, 100%. I do have a great concern. We've seen the cases that happen in the large international charities around the world. And I think that my concern is that as we get better in the UK at making sports safer, we're not solving the problem, we're moving it somewhere else. So there's a concern that this system becomes safer. Therefore, those people who wanted to perpetrate this country will go and volunteer in a sport for development program in a developing country where there won't be the background checks. They'll be welcomed because they're a volunteer. And they, again, there's that halo effect of they want to do something good. So there's a real concern there that just because we're getting better doesn't necessarily mean that we're solving the problem. We're just moving it to somebody else where they can go in a more developed country where they haven't yet got those safeguards in place. So that is a real concern that we tried to work with organisations to put safeguards in place and it may not be that in, in their particular countries they don't have the systems to have the background checks but some organizations we work with found ways to have at least their own version of that whether it's talking to the police or the head of the town areas so they find their own ways of getting references about people so that is a real concern is that the people will target the weakest area or the weakest countries okay so going back to sports generically 
Are there any particular sports that make the young person a bit more vulnerable in relation to the type of contact they're having with the person who's coaching them? Yeah, it's interesting. There's tried to be research that's looked at risk factors. And I think often there's a presumption in terms of maybe it's related to how many clothes they wear in a particular sport or whether it's to do with the sport enables touch or not touch. Mm -hmm. But actually, there's not consistent data to show that any of these things represent a real risk factor where there are perhaps challenges when there is that culture of a really high position of power in some sports where they're younger and they're quite elite. So where there's a sport that's set up in such a way that 15, 16, 17, they're very elite and the, the position is very much a position of power above them. There's scope there by the sport. And there's also certain other risk factors when it involves a lot of travel and staying away at hotels and those areas where that can create additional risks. But there's not real evidence to say, well, this sport is better than another sport. Going back to what I said before in terms of the cases, there's an instant reaction where we don't publish it and, and present which sport has a number of cases we do on an aggregated level okay. because people would assume that those sports with more cases is worse when actually I could argue they're better because they've got a better system, people trust it, they come forward, they've got confidence in the system. So actually it's quite hard to yeah. evaluate is a sport safe or not and people go straight to the number of cases but in reality it's, that's not the best indicator. So I think all we can say is that it comes down to that power imbalance wherever the sport enables that to happen. I remember colleagues telling me I was at a charity safeguarding doing something where an ex-gymnastic professional person was telling me she remembers 30 years ago warm up before the children would go on which would be literally massaging them rubbing their mm. outer upper arms and massaging it and it was just done casually ordinarily times and because everyone was doing it <laughs> she yeah. remembers being uncomfortable with it for some of people who did it too much or did it uncomfortably to where we are now and and I think a bit like swimming like you said the touch but also the costume would be slightly mm. a bit more skin bearing shall I say yeah. <laughs> the, yeah and your point is exactly right there about about the norm and that's what we see a lot where people don't even question it because this is how everyone does it all the coaches do it that way and particularly when I talked about emotional abuse if 75% of people are experiencing it then it becomes yeah. challenging for me to say well that's abnormal that's not the way it's to be done because everybody thinks well that's how I was coached that's how you get the best out of people when there's no real evidence to say that and what's an interesting tension is that I often see is that people think it's either safeguarding and welfare or it's elite performance. They see it's one or the other. So by somehow safeguarding somebody, you're going to lose a little bit of their performance, which is really a strange thing to work out why that happens. But that's quite a strong feeling across sport is that you have to really push somebody to the limit in whatever direction to get the most out. And so if you somehow put safeguards in place, you're not going to achieve that, which is a real interesting tension actually when we started to question that with the sports we work with around the world we realized that people have a real clear focus on its number of medals or increasing participation rates and they often see safeguarding as something that's extra work or something that's going to stop them achieving their goals as soon as we explain to people well actually if an athlete feels safe and they're happy and they're confident they're more likely to win a medal or they're more likely to come back and participate more so that link between actually safeguarding is going to help you achieve your goals not be a impediment to them is a kind of a light bulb moment with most organisations thinking they'd never seen it that way. They'd always seen it as something extra and they haven't got the resources and it's not something that they're interested in. So that was been an interesting finding is that actually, of course, if you feel safe, you're going to perform better. Exactly. And because I've heard likewise when colleagues say, we've all gone soft in sports now with children. To get the best out of them, you need to push them further at their comfort zone so they can experience the top end of their adrenaline, you know? Mm, There's yeah. an element there of the old school model, I'd say, when mm. clearly through the research that you've been doing, but also been working with as, like you said, you feel comfortable, you feel confident, you're more likely to do better rather than be petrified or somebody who's shouting at you. 
mm. or you know belittling you yeah yeah and there is a gray area where you want to push people to an appropriate amount and that clearly is a gray area in terms of where does it cross the line whether it's physically or emotionally and so on but it's having that conversation to work out okay if it does feel like it crossed the line the athlete should be able to say i don't feel comfortable with this i don't feel this is right and trying to create those conversations where you work out where is the line how much do they feel comfortable being pushed to get their peak performance but not in a way that jeopardizes their physical or psychological well-being so that's often a conversation that doesn't get had it's something where people just think well you just keep pushing them until they, they hit the extreme and often it's a, a vicious circle because people think well that's how i was coached and they often cite to me examples of well this is how x or y was coached and they got on a medal there's often a cause and effect there thinking well look because they were coached that way that's why they got the medal when i always have to think well actually maybe they could have done even better they got the medal despite that coaching not because of it and people just don't ever think about that they always think well it's always cause and effect they got it because of that coaching so in looking at the 2020 model or even the covid so we're in covid times now mm. how is that affecting the now with safeguarding in sports do you feel yeah, we've actually just been writing a paper on this exact issue because there's a number of factors that grow in concern. On the, on the absence side, the fact that sport isn't there means that the kids aren't getting the, the benefit. And also sport is often a safe haven. What's interesting is that when we looked at the case data, around half the cases of safeguarding that are managed by sport relate to incidents or behaviours outside of sport. So half of them are concerns of actually in sport, but half are where people are disclosing to a coach or somebody involved in the sports club and a potentially unhealthy relationship that's happening maybe at school or in the home. So sport is actually a powerful vehicle in, in detecting and disclosing these cases and managing safeguarding. So that's been taken away. So there's cost to children in terms of the absence of sport, but also sports changing its ways to still attract children. So we've seen a big increase in esports at the moment. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's so little really research or even thinking has gone into safeguarding in that context. So it's something that hasn't got the regulation, hasn't got the policies or procedures. And I've just seen some initial data about female gamers saying that around a third of them have been sexually harassed or abused online when they're playing these sports games. So that's a, a brand new context which has been massively growing and no one's really thought about that as a context where abuse could start to happen online or then maybe develop. So there's this further cost there where we, we've never looked at safeguarding in terms of esports. So that's a real area of these attention now and it's only going to grow. So it's going to be important going forward to work on that. You know, you mentioned the female gamers. Mm. Going back to something else you mentioned in our conversation today, is that because they report more? So could you argue it's also happening to boys, but boys not reporting it as much as the girls? Or is there a specific reason why it's higher for girls? Yes, yeah, certainly there has been research to show from their perspective about why a whole range of factors around sport and masculinity and being tough, that why people have been abused didn't come forward at the time and didn't talk about their experiences. So Dr. Mike Hartill at Edgehill University, he's done a lot of research in this area and showing that actually there's real barriers for boys in particular in sport to disclose abusive practices or behaviours. And they don't often come forward until when they're later on into the adults. So there could well be something there. So it's trying to encourage everybody, boys or girls, to be able to disclose their experiences and that to be treated in a positive way and not for them to feel like they've done something wrong or they shouldn't tell anybody. So yeah, it's good practice. will hopefully work for both genders. Mm. And also I'm thinking as you're saying that the whole thing about puberty and pornography and people sharing things to their friends, being the alpha male or whatever it might be in a sense of part of the group to a girl maybe get offended by it and saying something, you know. So again, we have the difference between the two genders. Yeah, and it's certainly been a massive change since I was the child 20 or 30 years ago is that mobile phones were big bricks that yuppies had and that was it. And now suddenly everyone's got a phone, everyone's taking pictures, sharing them. And even the culture now of young people seems to be the line has moved significantly from when I was a child to now in terms of what's appropriate and what you would be happy to do. 
And so the safeguarding almost needs to keep up with that because as soon as you say to children, that's not acceptable, but I go back to your point about normalization, as soon as it becomes the norm to do these things, then it's very hard to challenge and say, well, that's not safe or that's inappropriate because they think, well, everyone else is doing it, so it can't be that problematic. Okay, so in kind of summarizing your specialism, your expertise in the world of sports, what recommendations? So if there is colleagues here in the sports world or generally who are interested in knowing what can they do different or going forward, what do you suggest there, Daniel? Yeah, clear message will be listen to children because often safeguarding can be a whole lot of work, a lot of box ticking and policies and procedures and things on websites. But actually, unless you really understand the experiences of the children in your setting, you don't really know if safeguarding is having any effect or what you need to do to make things better. There's one thing to take away. It's work out how often do you speak to the children in your organisation, whether it's a more informal chat to see how things are going or it's more of a systematic survey or online tools to engage with them so they can report their experiences. That's the best way to really understand what's going on and to work out if what you're doing is making a difference. Whether they're happy, do you know about it? And whether they've got concerns, do you feel confident they'll be able to come forward, they know who to turn to and so on. So I would look at your organisation through the eyes of a child and think, what's their experiences and what data do you have on that? And that's often at the moment something that people haven't talked about. Safeguarding is often about them without them in the sense that all this goes on to protect children, but very often I don't see examples of people actually understanding what their current children in their organisation are experiencing and whether it's a positive or negative. So that's the one message I'll take away from this is uh, listen to the children. Thank you. And also internationally, I'm thinking in some cultures and countries where no one talks about abuse or child's not aware of what's happening to them is actually unhealthy or illegal, etc. What would that be for our international colleagues in that model? I suppose there's three levels in a sense. You do have the legal level in terms of, as you mentioned, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, that often people don't on the ground won't know about that. But there are these clear definitions of violence and what children's rights are. So that's kind of an international level to look at, that no matter where they are, they should be hopefully adhering to those rights. Then you have the policies within your country, the different laws and the policies within your organisations to look at what's legal and what isn't legal. So that gives you a starting point. And then below that, the third level is really the morality and what you think is acceptable or not. So it might be legal, it might be within the policy, but what are the grey areas we think, well, this organisation, this is appropriate or this is not appropriate. And often it's finding ways to get those conversations going in your country because words like abuse can often get resistance. They go, well, that doesn't happen in our sport. It closes down the conversation. So it's finding ways of talking about it with words and labels. So just talk about children's experiences and what are they? And often people automatically go to the extremes about sexual abuse and those stories they hit the media, which is clearly very important. But actually, most of the safeguarding issues are those day-to-day emotional abuse or bullying. And those more extreme cases are thankfully less often. So it's having those more everyday conversations rather than focusing on the extreme cases and say, oh, we don't have them, therefore we don't need safeguarding. It's starting that conversation now about whether it's this country or abroad, about what it's like to be a child in this organisation. What can we do to improve your experiences? And also you mentioned language. So, for example, I know a country in the Caribbean where they call it kind harm or anyone causing you harm, whether it's online, offline. And explaining the grooming model, again, in a layman's term in relation to a child's perspective. They found that useful because sometimes they trust other people over others based on, again, their status, their power, their connections with the family. Yeah, I think yeah, yeah definitely. And, yeah, and, you, and you don't often get encouraged to question these things and actually asking how do you feel about this and what does the child think because you put all your trust in the system when in most of the time people are very trustworthy in some cases that people use that position of trust and that's one final thing to talk about really is that what has been interesting last few years is working with the NSPCC is the sense that the position of trust legislation in the UK 
the age of consent being 60, but there's some professions where it's actually increased to 18. So if it's a teacher or a doctor or someone in a care setting, but sports coach isn't included in that legislation. So currently it's legal for someone to coach somebody right the way up until the day of their 16th birthday and then start sleeping with them. And that's legal. And that, that's a really interesting almost loophole in the law that we've been trying to advocate to say that actually sport coaches are at least as a position of trust as teachers, if not more so in some cases. And so that's something in the law that we've been trying to work towards. What's the reason behind the difference between sports coaches being different to teachers? Well, we looked into it and there's no real strong argument. I think it was just when the first law was developed in the 90s, it was just perhaps not seen as a position of power like a teacher would be in a school. And I think with the growth and the organisation and professionalisation of sport, now coaches are like teachers in a different setting. And the law doesn't also cover people in other settings, like faith settings, driving instructors. There's a whole range of other roles, which that 16 to 18 is a real area where we see a lot of cases. And it's an area where it's legal and some organisations will have a policy against it. So it would be against their policy. But it would be much easier to say, well, actually, all of these are positions of trust. It should be 18. And that would send out a clear message to sport that actually sports coach is a value position and it's seen as a profession but alongside that comes with a responsibility that actually have these professional standards to uphold as well. And that would perhaps move some of the grey areas where we see cases where, you know, if someone is 16, they're sleeping with a coach, the sport doesn't know what to do with it. The athlete might, in their eyes, think it's a romantic relationship. And often when I speak to people in that position 10 years down the line, they look back and they'll say it was definitely abuse. It wasn't consensual in the sense they would see it now. But at that age, you might think it's a romantic relationship. And so could they become really tricky for the sport to deal with because it's technically legal? Wow. Well, so they'd lose their job, but they won't go to prison. That's it. Yeah, and then they can move to another sport or another country and start the process again. Would they be barred from working with children? Obviously, yes, through the DBS service. So if it's good, if it goes through the whole disciplinary process and gets reported, often the concern is that, going back to your point earlier about being scared and reputation, is that if there are concerns, people then don't necessarily pursue it all the way the coach just gets taken out of the sport and doesn't come back but when you do a background check it would never show up so if they were to move to another sport another country there's no record of that happening unless it's really been referred to the dbs and so on so there's that tension there between actually the fear of making something more serious often people would just think let's just ban it from the sport and that's it and then another sport wouldn't necessarily know about that or another country wouldn't know about that so yeah in theory it would show up but not always i don't think it would always happen that's an important message, I think, for us to finish on with mm. the reality of the law, the reality of behaviours of concern, people moving on without it being on their reference, etc., or any kind of record. Yeah, and it's often not thinking that the background check is almost a silver bullet. So just because someone has no criminal record, that means they're safe. When everybody who's been an abuser would have had a clean criminal record until they got caught. So just assuming that that is the only safeguard, it's got to be clearly one part of the system. So it's it's actually observing their behaviour with people. How are the children acting with them? Are you talking to the children when a person first started? So it's not having the references, having a background check. Okay, you're safe now. It's more that's just the start of the safeguarding journey, not the end of it. I think that's also an important message about the, the day-to-day because often people are wound up in the paperwork of safeguarding and not the actual reality of what's happening on the ground. It's bringing it to real life and having indicators of that person's safe that are not just about ticking boxes and paperwork. It's more observing their behaviour. Do you ever go watch a training session or do you ever speak to the athlete? It's bringing safeguarding to life, really, rather than just the bureaucratic aspects of it. Some organisations where they really want volunteers, it's hard for them to say no and turn people away. So there's a real pressure. They want to have sport, they want to have it on, so they need people to run the sport. So it happens at the grassroots level for resources. But at the extreme level, it's when people are coming in as a coach, you know, with a very good reputation, 
and a big salary, people kind of therefore assume, oh, this person's safe because they've been at this club and that club and so on. It's kind of treating everybody the same and thinking actually just because they got a reputation or they're a successful coach doesn't mean that person's any safer necessarily than a person who's volunteering on a Sunday at a very recreational level. So no one's untouchable, basically, in relation to being challenged. Exactly, and that everyone should be treated the same way because often we've seen is that in the Barry Burnell case and cases like that is that they are perceived to be a very successful coach and scout and that's what gives them the position of trust. So they're often not only grooming the child, but they're grooming the parents, the club, the sport as a whole. So actually they've groomed the whole situation to everybody to trust them and therefore people do not report things or not see things that are right in front of them just because they're kind of distracted by the reputation that's around them. Yeah, very blatant when you look on reflection, but at the time it comes across as in the best interest. Well, that's it. You know, many of the big cases, I suppose the biggest one in this country will be the Jimmy Savile and the number of people that came forward with concerns, thinking actually that these people are manipulating the situation so that even though there are hundreds of people with concerns, it still doesn't get to a case where they get stopped. So they're very skilled in those areas. And so safeguarding needs to be equally as skilled at making sure that they don't bend the rules for people because of their reputation or what have you. Okay. Have you got anything you want to add, Daniel, before we come to the end of this podcast? Any other thing I that you feel that you haven't said that you might want to just give us as good words? The final thing I mentioned was you mentioned the project we're conducting on professional athletes looking at their children's rights. We've talked very much today around abuses, but when we look at the conventional rights of the child, there's a whole range of rights there from privacy to education, as well as violence that we talked about today. And so that's what we're moving towards a broad, broader perspective on this to say that Actually, it's not just about safeguarding, it's that when people become athletes, particularly elite child athletes, are we protecting all of their rights and not jeopardising them potentially because of a sports career? So that would be the final thing we're working on. Thank you. So it's reminding colleagues from sports backgrounds or organisations around the other rights they have, the rights to learn, to educate. So if they do have them on scholarships or any other form of coaching or programme, to remember they still have the right to learn to have privacy, respect, and all the other things that go with exactly, that. Exactly, yeah. I guess the key message really is to say, to see them as children first, and then athletes second, because often people see them as elite athletes, and they almost forget that they're children because they're so good at a particular sport and a certain skill. They almost forget to see them as a 14, 15, 16 year old child first, and then they're athletes second. Children first is an important message as well to get across. Thank you. We've sort of come to the end now, and I'd like to say thank you very much for giving us your time, Daniel for any colleague who's in sports or not but something to think of i'm thinking of schools they have PE teachers some settings still do sports within a different kind of setting even in uniform groups as well there's no element there isn't there of some sort of sport like you mentioned martial arts yeah and if anyone's got questions they can find me on the the love for website just google daniel ryan you'll find me so if anyone does want any things to talk to me about then feel free to send me an email definitely if you want him to come to talk to your organization then clearly email him but i found it very very useful always learning every day and i've learned something today it's top up i already knew so thank you appreciate that no problem i have to help thank you for listening to the aocpp's podcast if there are any specific topics you want discussed in future episodes email us at hello at aocpp.org.uk and if you would like more information about the association of child protection professionals including the free membership trial that we're running for the next few months then visit our website at childprotectionprofessionals.org.uk. Thank you.